So to talk about what we're going to talk about today is a continuation of what we talked about this morning. So if you didn't, if you're listening to this or if you've seen this, seeing it and you weren't there this morning, a lot of this might not make some sense. I would recommend going back and watching or listening to the first part. But the title of our of our talk is where are we now in the stream of prophecy and what is going to happen next? And what we've shown previously is that uh, the Seventh-day Adventist Church's goal, it's, it's, in fact, its mission is to spread the three angels' message. And it caps off with this in Revelation 10, 10. And then I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it up. And it was in my mouth, sweet as honey. And as soon as I had eaten it, my belly was bitter. And he said unto me, thou must, thou, thou must prophesy again before many peoples and nations and tongues. And here's the important part that I want to emphasize kings. Okay? Those kings that are evil kings, those kings that are part of government, yes, we're actually supposed to prophesy before them. So I wanted to give you another example of this uh, pattern that I I noted before we go on, because I always like to bring these patterns up when you see them. This is a pattern of the Passover before the Passover. This is what's so interesting about it. If we go back to Abraham, remember Abraham was before Moses, And we look at the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, We see the same pattern. Remember what we said had to happen before you could go to the 14th? What was it? Circumcision. Well, how does it start off? In Genesis 17, circumcision is introduced. Abraham becomes Abraham. And there's a renewal of the covenant. There's a renewal of the covenant. And it's in this position that Abraham receives... Three messengers, three angels, right at the time where we're supposed to be prophesying the three angels' message. And what are the three angels' message, right? The first one is, the hour of my judgment is come. The second one is, Babylon is fallen. And the third one is, get out of Babylon. Let's just, let's just condense it, correct? So in this case, three angels come to visit Abraham. Who's the first angel? Jesus. It's the first angel. And what does Jesus say to Abraham? For Sodom, the time of my judgment has come. And the second and third angel, what do they do? They go on to meet Lot in Sodom. And what do they tell Lot? Sodom is falling. And get out. So again, we see the three angels' messages right where we should see the three angels' messages. Now, what's interesting is that when those three angels go on to meet with Lot, Lot has this sense, we don't know why, but Lot does not want to let these people be out in the streets. He wants them in the house, and he wants the door closed, interestingly. Um, Before Lot even finds out why there are angels there, or what their purpose is, on the 14th here, um, what does he say? What does Lot make for them? You can look it up. If you don't believe me, your eyes are not going to deceive you. Look it up in Genesis chapter 19, verse 3. Genesis chapter 19, verse 3. And as we're waiting for somebody to find that, I want you to to remember this. This is kind of cool. Do you remember when the three angels tell Sarah that they're going to have a baby? And uh, who's that baby? It's Isaac. Do you know according to the Targum, according to the Jewish tradition, do you know what date... Isaac was born on Nisan 15. 
Do you know what the angels tell Sarah? They say, this time, next year, year, you're going to have a? So tell me, what time of year are the angels visiting Abraham at the Passover? And as you'll see, it's following exactly the same pattern that we've seen in all the other Passovers. Because on the 14th, when we should have no leaven in the house, before Lot even knows that there are angels there, he goes home and makes them what kind of meal? You saw it. Genesis chapter 19, verse 3. Before, the instant, before leaven, unleavened bread was even introduced. Think about that. That's mind-blowing. Right? He doesn't know that he's leaving. He doesn't know that he needs to rush or go out in a hurry. And that's exactly what he makes. Think about that. Okay? Second of all, the second and third angels tell him, hey, you got to get out. This place is going down. And then what do you expect to happen in the pattern? There's got to be a what? A door that closes. And sure enough, Genesis chapter 19, verse 10. And the angels grabbed the door and shut to them the door. These are the people that wanted to have relations with the angels, right? He grabs Lot, pulls him in and shuts the door. That's the close of probation. Now, does, a, does Lot try to convince his daughters and sons-in-law, the other ones that are not living with him, to come with him? Yes. But what, what we know that that's not going to be fruitful, right? Because the door is already shut. The close of probation has already happened. And so what, they, what do they look at him like? They like mocked him. Interesting. And so finally, because the door is locked, we're already on the 15th. And how is Sodom and Gomorrah destroyed? Fire and brimstone. There's only one other place in the Bible where fire and brimstone appears. And that's at the destruction of this world. Okay, so again, you can see this pattern happening over and over and over again. Um, I could tell you about, we have so much stuff to cover. Maybe at the end, we'll have question and answer. Do you remember when Solomon prayed for wisdom and he was given wisdom and riches? Do you remember he had a vision? What was that vision of him being in the most holy place? And then he came out of the most holy place. And what was the very next story? Exactly. Two women under one roof and he had to judge them. So think about this. Here is Solomon. Who is Solomon? The son of? The son of David comes out of the most holy and he has to judge Two women under one house. As Seventh-day Adventists, we know exactly what that means. Do you see it? Okay, so we need to start looking for these patterns that only Seventh-day Adventists know. If you understand the sanctuary, you'll be able to understand what these stories mean. Because the only way that Solomon could tell the difference between the right woman and the wrong woman was how? The sword. And what does the sword represent? The word of God. It's the only way you can tell. Can't tell any other way. Only the word of God can distinguish between the true church and not the true church. In every other way, they look the same. They both claim the baby. Start looking for these stories and you'll start to see things pop out. What does Ellen White say? When you have the spirit, there will be new meaning that will flash out of old texts. That's what you'll see. Okay, so here we are. Closing events. We are in that week. Simon's Feast, Last Supper, 
Prayer Garden, Trials, Judas, Barabbas, Crucifixion, all of these are studies that we could spend an hour on talking about. The curtain ripping, the body of, this, of, this, the, uh, bodies of Christ sealed in the tomb, ministry of, of Christ being ended. But we are at the Last Supper. We talked about the Last Supper. We're going to talk about the trials and the prayer in the garden at this point. Okay, so let's read what Ellen White, let's, let's illuminate the, the issue with what Ellen White says. This is Desire of Ages, page 685. As they approached the garden, the disciples had marked the change that came over their master. Never before had they seen him so utterly sad and silent. This is the body of Christ. This is the body of Christ. What's the body of Christ? Exactly. Never before had they seen him so utterly sad and silent. As he proceeded, this strange sadness deepened, yet they dared not question him as to the cause. His form swayed. This is after the Sunday law. Night has already fallen. He's now in the Garden of Gethsemane. Persecution is starting on the body of Christ. His form swayed as if you were about to fall. Upon reaching the garden, the disciples looked anxiously for his usual place of retirement and their master might rest. Every step that he now took was labored effort. He groaned aloud as if suffering under the pressure of a terrible burden. Twice his companions supported him or he would have fallen to earth. This was more challenging for Christ than the cross. And what was to be gained by the sacrifice? How hopeless appeared the guilt and ingratitude of men. In its hardest features, Satan pressed the situation upon the Redeemer. The people who claim to be above all others in temporal and spiritual advantages have rejected you. They are seeking to destroy you. The foundation, the center, and the seal of the promises made to them as a peculiar people. One of your own disciples who has listened to your instruction and has been among your foremost in the church activities will betray you. You are the, one of your most zealous followers will deny you. All will forsake you. Christ's whole being abhorred the thought that those whom he had undertaken to save, those whom he loved so much, should unite in the plots of Satan. This pierced his soul. The conflict was terrible. Its measure of the guilt of his nation, his accusers and betrayer, the guilt of a world lying in wickedness, the sins of men weighed heavily upon Christ, and the sense of God's wrath against sin was crushing out his life. What we get because of Christ's death on the cross is eternal life. He must suffer our death. And that's exactly what he experienced in the Garden of Gethsemane. Satan tortured him with the thought that this might be the last time he spoke to his father. And the same thing will happen to the church at this point, after the Sunday law. If you think, and I want to speak frankly with you, if you think a vaccine mandate is going to be persecution... The persecutions of Protestants and Romanism by which the religion of Jesus Christ was almost annihilated will be more than rivaled when Protestantism and popery are combined. Satan and a thousand masked batteries which will be opened upon the loyal commandment keeping people of God to compel them to violate conscience. We need not be surprised by anything that may take place now. We need not marvel at any development of horror whose those who trample under their unholy feet the law of God have the same spirit as had men who insulted and betrayed Jesus. Without any compunctions of conscience, they will do deeds of their father, the devil. 
Let those who desire to be refreshed in mind and instruction in the truth study the history of the early church during and immediately following the day of Pentecost. Study carefully the book of Acts, the experiences of Paul and the other apostles, for God's people in our day must pass through similar experiences. Desire of Ages, page 687. Behold him contemplating the price to be paid for the human soul. In his agony, he clings to the cold ground as if to prevent himself from being drawn further from God. The chilling dew of night falls upon his prostrate prostrate form, but he heeds it not. From his pale lips comes the bitter cry, O my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Even yet, now he adds, nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. And he prayed that three times. Ellen White says that his human body retracted, recoiled from the thought of the cross. But it was his separation from God the Father that really made him not want to go through this at all. He had been with his father from eternity, and now he had to give it up and potentially lose it forever. For those that he had spent three and a half years, had already, he knew that they would scatter. He had already predicted it. And so I want you to listen to this very carefully, because this is something that's happening in society. And I want to be very clear about this. Notice what Jesus, the body of Christ, is saying at this time. Not my will, but thine be done. Why does he say that? He says it three times. The reason why he says it three times, I believe, is to take note. Because this is the contrast that we have in society today. We have Jesus Christ saying, not as I will, but as thou wilt, Father. And in the world, what do we have? Do what thou wilt. That is the motto of the church of Satan and Thelema, the practice of Thelema by Aleister Crawley. You know who Aleister Crawley is? Have you heard of him? He was self-proclaimed prophet. High occultist. And we know that these people get involved with media and things of that nature. What is Thelema? Thelema is an esoteric and occult social or spiritual philosophy and religious movement developed in the early 1900s by Aleister Crawley. Here are the three main tenets of Thelema. Do what thou wilt shall be the whole law. Love is the law, but love is under the will. You've got to figure out what your will is, and once you figure out what your will is, then that's what you have to do. And if you don't do it, you're not living up to your standard. And then finally, every man and every woman is a star. How many times have you seen this in movies and television and music that you've got to look within yourself, and all you've got to do is believe, and you're going to be something like a star? That's, this is a recurring theme over and over. It's almost being bombarded. We see this in media. Follow your heart. Have you heard of follow your heart? It's everywhere. We have follow your heart, finding a purpose in your life. We have follow your heart, mayonnaise. <laughs> okay. We have follow your heart in China. We've got follow your heart, Cinderella. We have a sign, follow your heart, don't waste your life, fulfilling someone else's dreams and desires. Isn't that exactly what Christ tells, asks us to do? 
Don't we ask, what is God? Right? How about this? Whatever's good for your soul, do that. That's what out there is saying. What did Christ say at the cross? Not my will, because what was his will at that point from what he was seeing? He had every right. Think about this. He had every right under the government of heaven to say, forget it and go right back. He could have done that. He had every right to do it. He had legions of angels ready to wipe out that force that would have been in Gethsemane. And he could have said, adios. Well, he couldn't have said that because I don't think Spanish was a language at that point. But he could have said goodbye. So not as I will, but as thou wilt versus doeth what thou wilt. Listen to this. Listen to the, listen to the song, Follow Your Heart, from Cinderella 2. Listen to this. Listen to how demonic this is. Who's to say the rules must stay the same forever? Who made them have to change the rules that came before? So make your own way. Show the beauty within. When you follow your heart, there's no heart you can't win. So reach for the sky. Remember in Thelema, you're a star, right? Reach for the sky. It's not as high as it seems. Just follow your heart. Go as far as your dreams. Dare if you want to. Don't fear you'll fall. Take a chance because it's better than never to take a chance at all. There's a world for the changing, and you've just begun. Don't let them tell you it's simply not done. When you follow your heart, you'll shine as bright as the sun. This is what little girls are listening to. Okay, same Disney. Let's go back to Pinocchio. When you're in trouble and you don't know right from wrong, give a little whistle. There you go, I hear it. <laughs> it's almost like it's subconscious, right? We all grew up with that, right? When you meet temptation and urge is very strong, give a little whistle. Not just a little squeak, pucker up and blow. And if it's your whistle's weak, yell, Jiminy Cricket. Take a straight and narrow path. And if you start to slide, give a little whistle. And always let your conscience be your guide. And always let your conscience be your guide. Do you know that the Bible looks at conscience and the heart as the same? If you have a bad conscience, you have a bad heart. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Hebrews 10, 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. Is it possible to have a bad conscience? It certainly is. And our bodies washed in pure water. I'm fascinated by the life of Ellen G. White. She went to Oslo, Norway. At the time, it was called Christiana. And uh, the church in Christiana had a problem. Actually, it had two problems. And in my estimation, it has the same two problems that every single church has. Ellen G. White, in her first vision, had a, she noticed a path going to heaven. And those that kept their eyes on Christ made it on the path up to heaven, even though it was a narrow path. People fell off the path when they did not keep their eyes on Jesus. How many sides to the path are there? There's two sides. You can fall off the left side of the path, or you can fall off the right side of the path. And Satan has a way to do that. He figures, he sizes you up, and he sees, are you someone that tends to go to the left, or are you someone that tends to go to the right? 
and then he'll apply the appropriate pressure to get you off the side closest to where you are. So the same two problems in Christiana plague everywhere else. There was the problem for those on the left, poor Sabbath keeping. Okay? They just didn't keep the Sabbath. They didn't reverence it. And that's a problem. Okay? And then for those on the right, fanaticism, extremism. Listen to what they say here in historical sketches. Two evenings meetings were held during that first week, both attended by 500 people. But on Sabbath, November 7th, Ellen White's work at the Christiana Church began in earnest. Two serious problems plagued this important church. A lax spirit in regard to Sabbath observance and fanatical criticism over matters of minor importance. In place of the true test of loyalty, the church members had manufactured tests of their own on dress and photographic pictures. Interpreting the second commandment to apply even to photographs, some had burned pictures of their friends. Thus, a spirit of criticism, fault-finding, and dissension had come in, which had been a great injury to the church. And the impression was given to unbelievers that Sabbath-keeping Adventists were a set of fanatics and extremists, and that their peculiar faith rendered them unkind, uncourteous, and really unchristian in character. It is true, Ellen White told them during a course of her visit, that altogether too much money is expended upon pictures. Not a little means which should flow into the treasury of God is paid to the artist. But, but, the evil that will result to the church from the course of these extremists is far greater than that which they are trying to correct. Mrs. White was not a stranger to the business of handling extremists. She wrote, years ago we had to meet the same spirit and work. Men arose claiming to have been sent with a message, condemning pictures, and urging that every likeness of anything should be destroyed. They went to such lengths as to even condemn clocks, which had figures or pictures on them. Now we read in the Bible of a good conscience, and that there are not only good, but bad consciences. There is a conscientiousness that will carry everything to extremes and make Christian duties as burdensome as the Jews made the observance of the Sabbath. She says, but one says, my conscience does not condemn me in not keeping the commandments of God. But in the word of God, we read that there are good and bad consciences. And the fact that your conscience doesn't condemn you in not keeping the law of God does not prove that you are uncondemned in his sight. Take your conscience to the word of God and see if your life and character are in accordance with the standard of righteousness, which your God has there revealed. You can then determine whether or not you have an intelligent faith and in what matter your conscience is yours. This, the conscience of man cannot, the conscience of man cannot be trusted unless it is under the influence of divine grace. Satan takes advantage of an, un, of an enlight, unenlightened conscience and thereby leads men into all manner of delusions because they have not made the word of God their counselor. Many have invented a gospel of their own in the same manner as they have substituted a law of their own for God's law. Not as I will, but as thy will. Verses, follow your heart. Just do whatever you want. And so this is what happens. You have to realize that when we talk about liberty of conscience in the church, we're making an assumption there that that conscience is a good conscience. And I think for the most part, that is the case. But for those who are outside the church, 
and may hear what we're saying. They have no qualm. They, they don't have any, there's, there's no bar they have to measure up to. The bar that they measure up to is what's already in their hearts. And so what we're seeing in society as the spirit of God is being withdrawn over and over and over again, we are seeing defund the police. We're seeing anxious and fearful flight attendants pleading to Congress because nobody's listening to them. We are seeing here, none are more hopelessly enslaved than those who are falsely believed that they are free. These signs. Just yesterday, a member of parliament in his own district in a church was stabbed to death in broad daylight for holding a town hall meeting. Yes, just yesterday that happened. And so what we're seeing here in society, and this is where we're going, do you know how the Sunday laws are going to come in? We're told very clearly how the Sunday laws are going to come in. It's not going to be one political party exerting power over the other. The way that the Sunday laws are going to come in is because the world has gone into pure chaos. That is how the Sunday laws are going to come in. Absolute pure chaos and anarchism is going to happen. And when that happens, there is going to be such a cry from the populace to have law and order and to get back to God. And they're, they're absolutely correct in that, in that the reason why there is chaos is because there is no God in our lives. But Satan is going to allow that pendulum to swing back and make a minor tweak and he's going to add in the Sunday law. And who's going to stand up against that? Seventh-day Adventists are going to stand up against that. And with what are we going to stand up with it against? If we come at it with saying, if we come at it with a history of in the last 10 years or how many years it is of saying, yeah, we support all of the things that have led to chaos. We're not going to have a very good track record in that sense. And I believe Ellen White has taught us this, and this is what I want to go. Absolute chaos is what's going to happen. Okay? So here's the grand pendulum of society right now. And I want you, I want you guys to be as, as smart as serpents, but as harmless as doves. That's what, that's what God has called us to be. The grand pendulum of society as we speak right now is, on one side, mandates from authority, corruption, like we've never seen before, shutdowns and fear of loss of jobs. So what we have is our, is this, is this a, a milieu to give us inspire confidence in our leaders? Confidence in our leaders are at an all time low. Okay. They're at an all time low. And so what that does is it drives us if we're not careful to take the false dichotomy on the other side. Are we being manipulated to take the false dichotomy? And I'm fearful that we, that we might be, and we have to be careful on that. Because on the other side of this is distrust of authority, following your heart, do whatever it is that you want to do, and absolute anarchy. And what we're being presented with as society and Seventh-day Adventists is that you've got to choose one or the other. You either go off one side or you go off the other. So what does Ellen White say about this? What does the Bible say about this? Are we given direction in the spirit of prophecy about times like this, about how we should be behaving? Let me be very clear. I'm not saying to be in favor of mandates. What I'm asking is, how do we respond once they are law? That, do you see the difference? I may be against high taxes, 
But when that law gets passed and it comes time to pay the IRS, how do I behave? Do you understand what I'm saying? Okay, it's a very different discussion because we talked about in the first half here about how we are to be ready for Christ coming personally. And we already mentioned that the way to do that is righteousness by Christ, righteousness by faith, correct? But there's a second part because didn't it say that we have to prophesy to peoples, nations, tongues, and kings? So the question is, if that is our duty, is there a way that Satan can somehow take away our efficacy in doing that by binding us up? Do you see what I'm saying? We have another duty. We have not just the duty to be ready for Christ personally, but we also have a duty to spread the three angels' message. So is Satan at work to try to reduce that? And I believe he has. And let's go ahead and take a look. Here's Romans 13, 1 to 7. And I particularly like the clear word paraphrase. So I'm going to read it. Uh, if you want to read it in the King James, please go ahead. Here it is. This is Paul. Paul, the guy who was imprisoned. Obey government, even though you may not always agree with those in power. Human governments do have a part in God's overall plan, but they would have no such power if God did not allow it. Anyone who is against law and order is against what God has established. If you resist such laws, you may find not only find yourself opposing God, but being arrested as a lawbreaker as well. A good ruler doesn't arrest and punish people who are good, but those who are bad. You don't have to be afraid of those who rule over you unless you do evil. So do good, do what is good, and you will be honored. In this sense, law enforcement officers are serving God because they are put there to arrest and punish those who do evil. So if you do evil, then you're contributing to the breakdown of society and have good reason to be afraid. God has included human government in his overall plan to restrain wickedness. That's why you should be a good citizen, not only to avoid God's displeasure, but in order to maintain a good conscience. This, the same reason why we pay taxes, because those who enforce the law give serving God by maintaining law and order and keeping the peace. So give to everyone what is rightfully belongs to them. Taxes to the tax collectors, custom fees to the custom officials, respect to those in authority and honor those who deserve it. That's Paul. The guy who was beheaded. Look, what about A.T. Jones? The guy who went to Congress to testify against the Sunday law. What did he say? He said, let's look at this moment for a question in a common sense point of view. Of course, we are saying is common sense, but let us have this in addition. When societies are formed, each individual surrenders certain rights. And as an equivalent for that surrender has secured to him the enjoyment of certain others appertaining to his person or property, without the protection of which society cannot exist. I have the right to protect my person and property from all invasions. Well, every other person has the same right. But if this right is to be personally exercised in all cases by everyone, then in the present condition of human nature, every man's hand will be against his neighbor. And that is simple anarchy. And such a condition of affairs socially cannot exist. He goes on in this open letter. He's talking about the testimony that he gave in the Senate committee. Notice what he says here. In that speech, also, I said that if an idol worshiper in this country should attempt to offer a human sacrifice, the government should protect the life of its subject from the exercise of that man's religion. 
that he has the right to worship any idol he chooses, but that he has not the right to commit murder in the worship of his idol. And the state forbids the murder without any reference at all to the question as to whether that man is religious or whether that man worships or not, with no reference at all to the commandment which forbids idol worship, and with no thought whatsoever of forbidding his idolatry. I stated also that if anybody claiming apostolic example should practice community of property and in carrying out that practice should take your property or mine without the consent, the state would forbid the theft without any reference at all to the man's religious opinions. And with no doubt of forbidding the practice of community of property, you know that it was with direct reference to these words that I used the words which you have italicized. I there distinctly denied that the state can ever of right legislate in relation to anything in the first four commandments of the Decalogue. But if any man in the exercise of his rights under the first four commandments, and in this case under the fourth commandment, should invade the right of his neighbor as I have expressed it, either by endangering his life or his liberty or his property or attack his character or invade his rights in any way, the government has the right to prohibit it because of incivility, but with never any question as to whether the man is religious or irreligious and with never a purpose or thought of forbidding the free exercise of any man's right to work on any day or all days as he chooses. What is he saying? He's saying, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's, but render unto God that which is God's. In other words, if something affects other people, if your actions affect other people, the government has a right to step in and to regulate that. Not because because they can regulate religious laws, but they have to regulate civil laws. If you have to take a bridge to go to church, and that bridge is weak, and it could collapse on people below. The government absolutely, he says, has the right to step in and prevent you from going to church because you have to use that bridge. Do you understand what he's saying? There are civil things. So you cannot use religious liberty as an excuse to stop what the government has been granted, civility. That's A.T. Jones. What about Ellen White? What did she say? It is our duty in every case to obey the laws of the land unless they conflict with the higher law, which God spoke with an audible voice from Sinai and afterward engraved on stone with his own finger. Can she be more specific about what she's talking about? I don't think she could. She's talking about the law that God literally audibly told to Moses and wrote with his finger. So in other words, unless it goes against that law, the government has power. Ten precepts of Jehovah are the foundation of all the righteous and good laws. Those who love God's commandments will conform to every good law of the land. Testimonies. Teach the people to conform in all things to the laws of their state when they can do so without conflicting with the law of God. All right. What about the the Sabbath school quarterly writer? Clifford Goldstein. He wrote talks about the medical scientific controversy, but in terms of the Supreme Court, in the 1905 decision of Jacobson versus the state of Massachusetts, they wanted to know whether or not the state could mandate the smallpox vaccine. And it was a very overruling decision of seven to two. This was in 1905. Do you know what A.T. Jones said about that decision? Absolutely nothing. Because what would he have to say? 
it completely meets the definition that he already spelled out in 1888. If there is a problem with someone doing something that could affect other people's life or property, the government has a right to step in and to make a mandate. That was the opinion of A.T. Jones. Did Ellen White say anything about the 1905 decision? She, you, she did, as you know, pass in 1915. She had 10 years to talk about it. Did she mention anything about this mandate? Absolutely nothing. Not as I will, but as thou wilt, versus do what thou wilt. Testimonies for the church. Satan is a diligent Bible student. He knows that his time is short and that he seeks at every point to counterwork the work of the Lord upon this earth. It is impossible to give the idea of the experience of the people of God who shall live upon the earth when the celestial glory and the repetition of persecutions from the past are blended. They will walk in the light proceeding from the throne of God. By means of angels, there will be constant communication between heaven and earth. And Satan, surrounded by evil angels and claiming to be God, will work miracles of all kinds to deceive, if possible, the very elect. She goes on to talk about how many will be imprisoned. Do you know that you, if, you, if you're signing up to be Seventh-day Adventist in a time of trouble, do you know what that means? That means you may be losing your life just as Christ went to the cross to lose his life. What was the purpose of Christ losing his life? To save others. You see, at the, end of, at the end of the game here, the point that Christ wants to do is he wants to save as many people as possible. That's his goal. His blood is not to be wasted. And if it means that we lose our right to freedom, see, here's the thing. You're thinking that God is doing this to you. You are going to be so in tune with God, you're going to be thinking like God. And to you, going to prison, knowing that someone else is going to be saved because of your martyrdom, or even die, you will lose the right to life, you will lose the right to freedom. Why? Because before the close of probation, that could mean that someone else is saved. Do you remember Tyndale? Tyndale translated the Bible into the English language. He was across the channel, and then he was betrayed. He was brought back, and the king of England was Henry VIII. And he was sentenced to death. Now, if you were sentenced to death, the last dying words that you could say, what would you do? You would probably say something pretty mean about the guy who was, gonna, was killing you, right? Before he was strangled and burned at the stake, Tyndale gave out this prayer. What was on Tyndale's mind as he went to his death? Anyone know? Say what it was. The people. It was the people. But what did he say? He said, please, God, open the king of England's eyes. He prayed for his enemy. And you know what? Within a year, King Henry VIII said that we're going to make an English translation of the Bible. And do you know what most of that translation was made up from? Tyndale's version. This is what we're talking about. This is what we're talking about. So here are the closing events. I mean, Tertullian in 197 said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Those who go to death under the third angel's message will have a special resurrection on that morning. We're right here. Let's talk about trials. 
By the way, let's go back a little bit. Do you remember when Jesus prayed those three times and he kept coming back to the disciples? Pray with me, pray with me. And they were asleep. And he came back and pray with me. They were asleep. After the third time, where he says, not thy will, but thine be done, right? He said that for the third time. Um, he was the exception. He said that, not my will, but thine be done. What, what's the rest of the world going to be doing at that time? It's going to be doing their will. And that's going to cause chaos. And chaos is going to lead to the National Sunday Law, which is going to lead to enforcement, which is what? Religious leaders using civil authority to persecute. What happens immediately after Christ is done praying three, praying three times? Who shows up? The Roman soldiers with the high priests. And the disciples scatter. Do you see how this, I mean, literally every event in that week is exactly in order of what is going to happen. And there's still some people in the church that are going to be a little bit violent, right? Did somebody lose their ear? Yeah? Jesus takes off the, he just, like, is nothing, puts the air back on. Who do we want to be? Like Peter who's chopping off the air or Christ who's putting the air back on? Exactly. We're very clear here. But let's go to the trial. So they go to Annas, then they go to Caiaphas. But when they finally go to the Romans, by the way, at Caiaphas's um, a trial, who's the one that saved Jesus' life at Caiaphas's trial? Anyone know? Who was it? The Roman soldiers. The Jews were ready to rip Jesus apart. It was the Roman soldiers that could not believe how these people were accusing this man of this and ready to kill them. It was the Roman soldiers that saved his life. I mean, we know that they would have saved his life because Jesus was not going to die in that way. But when they finally took Jesus to the Romans, what was it that they accused Jesus of? Sedition. Sedition. Against the state. They said that they were going to tear down this temple. Why would the Romans be concerned about the temple? The Romans put a lot of money into that temple. They spent a lot of money. That was part of what they were doing. And destroying that temple was destroying the government. And the whole multitude of them arose and led them to the Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to give tribute to Caesar. Did he forgive to, to tribute to Caesar? Did he do that? He didn't. He was falsely accused. But what was he accused of? Going against the government. Remember that. The body of Christ was accused of going against the government. Ellen White, great controversy. And, I, and before we get down to these texts, there's a lot of texts here. I have found that Ellen White was almost obsessed. I, I won't say obsessed because she, she, she was told what to write. But there's almost a, a huge theme of please. Whatever we say in our articles, whatever we say up in public, whatever we write in our journals, please never allow it to be taken out of context to say that we are against the government. She's very particular about that, and I wonder why that's the case. Those who honor the Bible Sabbath, she says, will be denounced as enemies of the law and order, as breaking down the moral restraints of society, causing anarchy and corruption and calling down the judgments of God upon the earth. Even in free America, rulers and legislators, in order to secure public favor, will yield to the popular demand for a law enforcing observance, Sunday observance. It's coming from the populace. It's not the left versus the right. The left and the right are going to join hands and say, this is a good idea, okay? 
So again, we, I believe that we, there is a false dichotomy in the church right now. Are we going to be on the side of the mandates? Draconian, people losing their jobs. It, it, it's, it's, it's disturbing, right? Mm. But does the government have a right to do it? Doesn't mean that I like it. The question is, how do we respond to it? Do we react to it and go to the other side and say, we're not listening to authorities anymore. We're throwing it out. We're writing this all down on YouTube comments. We're writing this down on Twitter. We're giving sermons about it. Everything is being recorded. You heard, these people, you heard about like these CEOs and these movie stars who wrote something 13 years ago, and now they're getting canceled. Let me tell you, Seventh-day Adventists are going to be drawn into the spotlight like nothing you can ever imagine when the Sunday law comes. It's going to be as if we're running for president. <laughs> we are going to get a thorough file. Okay? And when you get put up into court, everything that you ever wrote, everything that you ever said, you already know what your accusation is going to be. We already know what the accusation is going to be. Here's the accusation, Your Honor. Here is a Seventh-day Adventist who refuses to go along with the Sunday law. He is corrupt. He causes anarchy. He's against uh, law and order and uh, all of these things. Okay, let's go, let's go back and see what they wrote. Oh, here he says that, you know, whatever he says. Okay? I think we're getting drawn in. We're getting drawn into a false dichotomy. How are we to be as smart as doves and as, as sorry, as wise as serpents, but as harmless as doves? Well, I, doves are pretty stupid, I guess. I don't know. So what can happen is we could get bound up. Do you understand what I'm saying? They're trying to get you bound up in these movements so that you're, you're, you're ineffective at doing what you have been commissioned to do, which is to spread the three angels' message even to kings. So what does she say? Whatever your opinions you may entertain in, in regarding to casting your vote in political questions, you are not to proclaim it by pen or voice. Our people need to be silent upon questions which have no relation to the third angel's message. If ever a people needed to draw nigh to God, it is Seventh-day Adventists. There have been wonderful devices and plans made. A burning desire has taken hold of men or women to proclaim something or to bind up with something. They do not know what. But the silence of Christ upon many subjects was true eloquence. Our work is not to make a raid on the government, but to prepare a people to stand in that great day of the Lord. The fewer attacks we make on authorities and powers, the more work we will do for God. We are not required to defy authorities. Our words, whether spoken or written, should be carefully considered. This advice is to be of real value to those who are to be brought into straight places. Nothing that shows defiance or that could be interpreted as maliciousness must be shown. Those who compose our churches have traits of character that will lead them, if they are not very careful, to feel indignant because on account of misrepresentation of their liberty in regard to working on Sunday being taken away. Do not fly into a passion over this matter, but take everything to prayer in God. He alone can restrain the power of rulers. Walk not rashly. Let none boast unwisely of their liberty using it for a cloak of maliciousness. But as the servants of God, honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. If we wish to convince unbelievers that we have the truth that sanctifies the soul and transforms the character, we must not vehemently charge them with their errors. Thus we force them to the conclusion that the truth does not make us kind and courteous, but coarse and rough. 
Some easily excited are always ready to take up the weapons of warfare. In times of trial, they will show that they have not founded their faith on the solid rock. Let Seventh-day Adventists do nothing that will mark them as lawless and disobedient. Let them take all consistency out of their lives. Our work is to proclaim the truth, leaving the issues with God. Do all in your power to reflect the light, but do not speak words that will irritate or provoke. Let everyone bear in mind that we are in no case to invite persecution. We are not to use harsh and cutting words. You know, you know how many times I see on YouTube comments, oh, there's another apostate. You know, they said that the church was going to go down. Bright lights were going to go out. You see these comments all the time. Keep them out of every article written. Drop them out of every address given. Let the word of God do the cutting, the rebuking. Let finite men hide and abide in Jesus Christ. Let the spirit of Christ appear. Let, not, let all be guarded in their words. Lest they place those not of our faith in deadly opposition against us. And give Satan an opportunity to use the unadvised words to hedge up our way. There is a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation. Our work is to study to weed out of our discourses everything that savors of retaliation and defiance and making a drive against churches and individuals because this is not Christ's way and method. Let us guard against speaking words that discourage. Let us resolve never to engage in evil speaking and backbiting. Let us refuse to serve Satan by implanting seeds of doubt. Let us guard against cherishing unbelief or expressing it to others. Many, many times I've wished that there might be a circulating pledge containing a solemn promise to speak only those words that are pleasing to God. There is great need for such a pledge as there is one for the use of intoxicating liquor. Let us begin to discipline the tongue. Remember always that we can do this only by disciplining the mind. For out of abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. Though the help that Christ can give, we shall abide to learn to bridle the tongue. Sorely as he was tried on the point of hastily and angry speech, he never once sinned with his lips. With patient calmness, he met sneers and taunts and the ridicule of his fellow workers at the carpenter's bench. Instead of retorting angrily, he would begin to sing one of David's beautiful psalms. And his companions, before realizing what they were doing, would unite with him in the hymn. What a transformation would be wrought in this word if men and women today would follow Christ's example in the use of words. The ideas, she says to somebody, expressed in your article savor so strongly of antagonism that you will do harm more than you can possibly conceive. Remember that by the... In oh, wow. Remember that if by the injudicious use of your pen, you close the door to even one soul, that soul will confront you in the judgment. Oh, how much has been said that this has turned souls to bitterness and gall against the truth. Words that should have been a savor of life unto life have been made a savor of death unto death by the spirit which accompanied them. The Lord is soon to work in greater power among us, but there is danger of allowing our impulses to carry us where the Lord would not have us go. We must, we must not make one step that we will have to retrace. We must move solemnly, prudently, not making use of extravagant expressions or allow our feelings to become overwrought. We must think calmly. We must work without excitement, for there will be those who become easily wrought up who will catch up unguarded expressions. This is on both sides, okay? On both sides. 
and may use of extreme utterances to create excitement. You guys heard of the Hegelian dialectic. It's you create two extremes and they rub each other up back and forth until there is so much chaos that out of this people are willing to accept a solution, any solution. Do not be part of the extremes is what she is saying. There is a class of people who are always ready to go off on some tangent, who want to catch up on something strange and wonderful and new. But God would have all move calmly, considerately, choosing our words in harmony with the solid truth for this time, which requires to be presented to the mind as free from which is emotional as possible. We still bearing the intensity and solemnity that is proper it should bear. We must guard against creating extremes. Guard against encouraging those who would be either in the fire or in the water. Do you understand what's going on here? I believe, and I'm not absolutely 100% sure, but the powers that be would like to see chaos. Because unless you have chaos, you can't have a new world. Do you understand what I'm saying? Okay. So what is the best way of preventing chaos? Is to prevent the pendulum swing. When you see something far on one side that is repulsive... That doesn't mean you have to take the other extreme. Keep your eyes on God. Follow the road. Don't fall off on either side. We should weed out each expression. Listen to this. We should weed out. I I have a feeling here that Ellen White has seen something. I don't know if we're going to be accused in the future of lawlessness because of our reputation or because we oppose the Sunday law, or both. But this is what she says. We should weed out each expression in our writings and our utterances that, if taken by itself, could be misinterpreted so as to make it seem antagonistic to law and order. Everything should be carefully considered lest we place ourselves on record as uttering things that will make us appear disloyal to our country and its laws. I have heard Seventh-day Adventist pastors preaching in Seventh-day Adventist pulpits that the false Christ of Matthew 24 represents religious leaders, political leaders, medical leaders. And we may be saying that, that liberty of conscience is appropriate, but realize that there are people outside of that who may take it a little further. And let's face it, there is not a lot of trust in government right now. We see corruption every day. And I think we're being tempted, as Christ was being tempted in the garden, to go to the other extreme and be lawless. Or at least get us on record for being lawless. I'll explain why that would work for Satan. We are not doing the will of God if we sit in... Okay, so what about the other? So you saying, Roger, that when our freedoms come down, we should just sit quietly? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. No. Not at all. Listen to what Ellen White says. We are not doing the will of God if we sit in quietude, doing nothing to preserve liberty of conscience. We should be doing something. But what is that thing that we should be doing? Fervent, effectual prayer. That is what we should be doing. Can our enemies use our words in prayer against us? No. Your prayer is only between you and God. Fervent, effectual prayer should be ascending to heaven. Now, why? Why is that? So we can protect our liberties and have a nice life? Is that the purpose for for protecting our liberties? There's only one reason why we should have our liberties protected. And she says it right here. 
should be ascending to heaven that this calamity may be deferred. Why? Because we like the life that we're living? No. Until we can accomplish the work which has been low song. So, lo, so, so long been neglected. I wanted to say it so fast. It's been neglected. It's the work that we have to do. That's the reason why we stay it. It's not for our own rights. Testimonies for the church. What is it about our rights? This is what she says in manuscript releases. In cases where we are brought before the courts, we are to give up our rights unless it brings us in collision with God. It is not our rights that we are pleading for but God's right to our service. When you signed up to be a Seventh-day Adventist, did you know that this is what the price of discipleship was? Do you think that Jesus did all that in the Garden of Gethsemane so we didn't have to? Jesus did that in the Garden of Gethsemane to show us what we had to do because everybody must bear their own cross. So here's the grand pendulum of society. Which way are we going to go? Here we are. Three stories. And I will end. Here are the three stories. Revelation 10, 10, 11. And I took this little book out of the angel's hand and ate it up. And it was in my mouth sweet as honey. And as soon as I'd eaten it, my belly was bitter. Great disappointment. And he said unto me, Thou must prophesy again before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. I had the pleasure of having a conversation with the ambassador from the United States to the island of Malta in 1997, I think it was, that she was named, uh, Kathy Prophet. I don't know if you know that. She's a Seventh-day Adventist. And she was named by President Clinton to be the ambassador to Malta. She wrote a great article in the Adventist Review, Eight Lessons from My Ambassadorship in Malta. Let me, let me tell you what she told me on the phone. She said three things. I'll give you three things. The first thing she said was when she went to the State Department and she was told, um, this thing that I'm about to tell you, you never do. If you do this, we will immediately pull your credentials and send you on a plane back to the United States. Okay? And what was it? She said, they told her, never, ever get involved in local politics. Whoever the people of Malta decide to have as their leader, that is their business. You never, ever go one way or the other. You, the second thing she said is, you must personally embody the foreign policy of the United States to the island of Malta, to the country of Malta. It is not a nine-to-five job. It's 24-7. Second thing they told her, or third thing they told her, is uh, whatever personal opinions that you have are gone. Everything that you say, everything that you do, all of your actions are in the embodiment of the foreign policy of the United States in Malta. And the last thing that he told her before he left the office is there was a big globe in the corner, she said. And uh, she spun, he spun the globe, and he said, okay, I want to see if you can find your country. As you know, Malta is a very small island in the Mediterranean. So she was, she was good. She, she found it, and she pointed right onto Malta, to which he said, no! Never forget. And he pointed to the United States. This is your country. <laughs> Folks, we are ambassadors of another country. We are ambassadors of another country. 
Okay? We are not to get involved in local politics. Okay? Whatever our personal opinions are, remember that 24-7, we are representing the foreign policy of heaven on earth. And never forget that your country is in a land, not of this world, but up above. The one thing that doesn't work in this analogy is that there is no diplomatic immunity. We must follow the laws of the countries that we're in. The second story I wanted to tell you is um, my sister married uh, Sean Pittman. I don't know if you know who Sean is. Uh, he is a pathologist living up in Reading, and he told me a story once that I want to tell you that I think is a great example, a real-world example. So he graduated from medicine. He paid back his, his time in the military, in the Army. Okay? He was stationed in Georgia. And as being a very devout Seventh-day Adventist, you can imagine paying back your time in the military would be difficult. And it was. One time he was told, you need to go to Texas and you need to take this course. And this course was on Saturday. So he shows up in Texas and he tells the guy there, as soon as he gets there, he said, look, I, I took this course a few months ago because I knew it was going to be on Saturday. It was actually a whole month thing that they did. And he said, I can't, I can't do this. I can't go on Saturday. And the guy looked at him and said, um, you're going to have to. He says, uh, I, I'm not going to do it. I can't do it. And he says, well, then we're going to court-martial you. He said to Sean, we've had many Seventh-day Adventists come through here, and they have never had a problem taking this course on Saturday. What did I say? What were the two problems in every church? Okay. And further, Sean tells me, is the, the guy who was talking to him, who was also a commander, or also a captain, he said, I used to be a Seventh-day Adventist until I saw the light. So Sean said, well, I know that you can't court-martial me here because I'm not in my home district. I'm not back in Georgia. The guy, he, Sean says he just looked at him for about a minute. He says, wait here, I'll be back. And he went to go talk to the colonel, who was actually the commanding officer. And he was in there for about 40 minutes. Sean was in the waiting room. You can imagine all of the stories in his mind uh, that were going through all the Uncle Arthur bedtime stories. <laughs> so he comes out and he says, okay, this is what we're going to do. This is for a month, okay? He says, we're going to give you your own Humvee and a driver from sundown Friday to sundown Sabbath, Saturday. You can go wherever you want. You don't have to take the course. Sean said, great. So guess what? Sean went to church in fatigues with his driver in the Humvee. And then they went to potluck afterwards. The point being is that when God puts us in positions of persecution, sometimes it's not all that bad. Maybe it's, it's actually for a good purpose. Do we know the purpose of God? We don't. Not always. Now, when Sean got back, um, they finished the, the four-week course. And, uh, and uh, so he it was at the very end, and they were going to have a big pizza party. Okay? So big pizza party. And uh, he shows up to the pizza party, and they bring in all of these pizzas, pizza after pizza after pizza. All of the pizzas were pepperoni pizzas. All of them. And so Sean said, oh, I'm just going to maybe just have some potato chips. And so he starts eating potato chips. After about 20 minutes, the guy in charge said, okay, you can bring in the big vegetarian pizza. 
They had a big vegetarian pizza just for Sean, and they brought it in, and Sean was able to eat the vegetarian pizza. So Sean flies back to Georgia, and he talks to his commanding officer about the incident. And the commanding officer uh, didn't look surprised at all. In fact, he knew about the whole thing. Mm. And he said, Sean, as far as I'm concerned, you're golden. He says, we have people in here all the time who are Seventh-day Adventists who do not follow the Sabbath, don't follow anything. And then we have people that come here, and they have an exemption for this, an exemption for that, an exemption for the other, an exemption for this and that. And Sean was the type of guy who would, if he couldn't do something on Saturday, he would make up for it on Sunday. He made sure in every duty that he could possibly do that he was there, accounted, present for, and would do everything 110%. And his commanding officer said, Sean, you're golden in my book because I know that your religious convictions are true. And he said, if you would have had one bite of that pepperoni pizza, you would have been court-martialed. <laughs> People are watching us. People are watching us to see what is it that we are doing. And the question is, is that is important. The last question, or the last story is this, and I'll let you go. But this, I think, is, is the... Is the Icing on the cake. I think that Daniel, the, the story of Daniel's three friends at the image is a perfect analogy for what we are about to go through. Why do I believe that? I believe that because Daniel's three friends knows exactly what is going to happen. Okay? They know that their friend Daniel has prophesied about an image. And they know that the image is being built on the plains of Dura. And just like we are going to have an image that we are going to be tested against, so did they have an image that they were going to be tested against. And when they went to be tested, they found that they were breaking the law. So what happened? The king throws them into the fiery furnace and closes the door. And how many times hotter is it? Seven times hotter. And during that period when it's seven times hotter, the people that threw them into the fiery furnace, are they, are, are they destroyed? Yes. But are they destroyed? No. And in fact, the things that bind them, sin, what happens in the fiery furnace? They're released. They're free. And who is walking with them? Exactly. So, if we read in Prophets and Kings... Think about this. This is what Ellen White writes in Prophets and Kings. With an enthusiasm, she's talking about Nebuchadnezzar, with an enthusiasm born of boundless ambition and selfish pride, he entered into council with his, who? Wise men. Would that be Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? As well as many others. As to how to bring this about. Forgetting all except their desire to establish their own power and supremacy, the king and his counselors of state determined that by every means possible, they would endeavor to exalt Babylon as supreme and worthy of universal allegiance. Tell me, did Daniel's three friends know what the whole statue building was about? Absolutely. They knew it was leading to a test. They knew it. 
They absolutely knew it. Historians say that this thing was out on the plains of Dura. It was so tall it could be seen from the city of Babylon. There is no way that Daniel's three friends did not know what was going on in the plains of Dura. And yet, when they got the invitation to meet on the plains of Dura, did they say no? Did they get an exemption? When they were walking, what do you think the other Levites who were there probably thought? Apostates. Right? Yeah? Did they go? Is there a law in the Decalogue that says you shall not convene in front of an idol? What, is the, what does the second commandment say? Thou shalt not bow down to them nor serve them. Tell me, were Daniel's three friends following the advice of Ellen White? <laughs> Ellen White wasn't there, right? But were they following the same spirit that inspired Ellen White? Yes. Daniel's three friends knew exactly what the purpose of that image was. And yet, when they were told to go to that image, they went to that image. Why? Why didn't they just say, we're not having any part of this? This is leading to a... We know exactly, there is no good that can come of this. We should be protesting against this. Did they go or did they not? Do you think they were happy to go? Did they want to go? No. There's a difference between following the law and liking the law. Do you think they liked that law that they had to be there? Do you think they were encouraged by the fact that they were going to show themselves and be out there? They would have loved not to have to go. But there was a law that they had to show up, and they did. Do you understand? What happened next? You know what happened. You know what happened. They got pulled, and the king gave them another chance. They said, don't bother. We're still going to do it. We're still not going to bow down. So he had the fiery furnace ready to go. But this is what Ellen White says was in the thought of King Nebuchadnezzar when he looked at those three men. This is what she wrote in Prophets and Kings, page 507. As the three Hebrews stood before the king, before the king, before the king, what did we say we had to preach to? What was our, what was our charge? Nations. Peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. He was convinced that they possessed something the other wise men of his kingdom did not have. They have been faithful in the performance of every duty. Do you see why that's important? King, these are the three wise men that have given us grief at every turn. They refused, they, they, wanted, they didn't want to show up, and now that you're asking them to bow, they don't want to bow. Do you, understand, do you understand that this is an amazing story that tells us exactly why it is that Ellen White has asked us to make sure and be careful not to have these, this type of language in our discourse. Because at the time when we are accused of being unfaithful, of being anarchists, it's going to be an empty accusation. Because even the king himself is going to look at us and say, they have been faithful in the performance of every duty. And when it counts, when the actual defining issue comes up, 
we are going to have a validity where we are not going to be casting attention on us. We're going to be casting attention on the law. Do you understand what I'm saying? Satan wants to diminish our ability to do the very thing that we were commissioned to do, which is preach the three angels' messages. And it is important to keep that commission sacred. Because this is what the king says. The last recorded words of the king, after he went through the seven years of of wildness, at the very end of all of this, was it worth it? Was it worth it? For Christ, any soul is worth it. And if we are not preaching to the government, if we are not preaching to the king, who is going to do that? Who is going to do it? This is Nebuchadnezzar, his last words in Daniel chapter 4. At the same time, my reason returned unto me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my honor and my brightness returned unto me, and my counselors and my lords sought unto me, and I was established in my kingdom, and excellent majesty was added unto me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven and all whose works are truth and his ways are judgment and those that walk in pride he is able to abase and so daniel's three friends thousands of years before the charge was given met and prophesied again to peoples tongues nations and kings And the way that we are going to reach those kings is not by abrogating their laws unnecessarily. But when the time comes, and it will come, there will be a time to stand up. Make sure that we're standing up with legitimacy and we're able to say clearly, this is not the day. And so that the king can say to us and look at us and say, they have been faithful in the performance of every duty. Let us pray. Dear Lord, thank you so much for giving us examples in the Bible of how it is that we must behave and why it is, even though that we don't like the way things are going, we are seeing our freedoms taken away every day. And yet we don't want to be bound up by movements that will impede our ability to finish and execute our our mission and our charter. Help us, dear Lord, to stay on this straight and narrow and not to be swept away by winds as we go into this time of trouble and to give, give us sustenance and to uh, understand your word. In thy name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.